Thanks for tuning in. I'm Shelby. And I'm Renee. And you're listening to The Creepy Burrito. You couldn't guess it from the musical stylings. Today, we are talking about the one, the only, the infamous Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> Thanks. You're your hype man right now. <laughs> Hyped. I feel good. <laughs> In honor of her birthday on June 1st, why not talk about the legend and the events that led to her undoing? Current day, she would be 94 years old, so... Just take a second, chew that in. What would she be like? Fucking wrinkly. Fucking wrinkly. <laughs> Best description of a 94-year-old woman. Wrinkly and bald, probably, because she bleached that hair. Bleached the fuck out Quite of it. Quite often. Well, at some point, she would just naturally be white. Like, platinum white, right? she had right? hair left. I guess, maybe. Okay. But anyways, we're gonna deep dive right the fuck into it. But first, Renee... How do you like your burritos? Blonde. Well, some <laughs> like it hot was my oh, joke. That was a good so one. it's a joke on a joke. <laughs> Fuck it, jokeception. Okay, enough monkey business. The beginnings of a star weren't as bright as you would think. So I'm going to take you back to before she was ever even born. Her mother was Gladys Baker. She grew up in a poor Midwestern family and married at 15 years old to John Newton Baker, an abusive man that was nine years older than her. Gladys and John had two kids together and divorced by 1923. And a year later, she had married Martin Edward Mortensen which only lasted a few months before they separated and finally divorced in 1928. Marilyn Monroe wasn't always Marilyn Monroe. She was born under the name Norma Jean Mortensen on June 1st of 1926, and her birth certificate listed her father as Martin Edward Mortensen with the location unknown. Funny thing is, by the time that Norma Jean was born, Gladys had already separated with Martin as well as There was a difference in the spelling of the last name. On her birth certificate stated the last name Morton Sun, S-O-N, when Martin Edward Mortensen was Morton Sen, S-E-N. Just adding to the confusion of (laughs) not knowing who her father fucking was. So starting off with daddy issues and uh, identity crisis. And to make it even more confusing, shortly after Norma Jean was born, her mother changed her last name back to her first husband's last name (laughs) of Baker. So if you look back into Norma Jean's early years, you'll see it both ways. Um, I've seen it both ways. Yeah. Norma Jean didn't know who her father was. So what she would do is imagine that her father was Clark Gable. If you don't know who Clark Gable was, my favorite infamous line was, frankly, my dear, I I don't don't give give a a damn. damn. From Gone with the Wind. Heartthrob. So Mm -hmm. good. But anyways, so she looked at him as a father figure. And basically, she came out of the womb covered in daddy issues. (laughs) If you can't understand what I mean, well, you soon will. That's some fucking escapism. Yeah. Right there, pretending that your father is a movie movie star star that you've never met before. I mean, she will. Someday. Someday. She will. Okay, let's fast forward to that part. (laughs) I can't fast forward. (laughs) Going through everything. You gotta go through the traumatic stuff to get to more traumatic stuff. It's gonna be great. Okay? Okay, okay, okay. Gladys was not ready for motherhood, mentally or financially. She had made the decision to place infant Norma Jean with foster parents Albert and Ida Bolander, 
and Gladys herself lived with them for a short period of time of a couple months um, until she needed to move to the city where she was working long hours as a film cutter at RKO Studios. She was trying to save up enough money to get a place for her and her daughter, and she would still visit Norma Jean on the weekends when she was living in the city. In the summer of 1933, she finally saved up enough money for a small home in Hollywood and was able to move seven-year-old Norma Jean in with her. So up to this point, she didn't consecutively have Norma Jean. So from when she was an infant to seven years old, she was Mm -hmm. just bouncing around. Yep. Cool. And Mm -hmm. even when she got this home, they had shared the home with actors George and Maude Atkinson, including their daughter Nellie. It only took a few months for this all to fall apart. By January of 1934, Gladys had a mental breakdown and diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. I personally believe it was due to the stress of trying to juggle work, a home, a daughter, something that she wasn't used to doing. She was pretty independent most of this time Mm -hmm. uh, in Norma Jean's life. This was the first time since Norma Jean was born that she was solely responsible for. Not to mention the financial burdens and state of the country at the time, since this is all during the Great Depression. Hmm. If you're looking at, like, what's going on? The economy. (laughs) The economy, everything falling apart. Yeah, that could uh, trigger some additional stress. After this mental breakdown, she was committed and spent the rest of her life in and out of hospitals. So... Where does this leave Norma Jean? Grace Goddard was Gladys's best friend, and they had worked together as film editors. Grace Goddard took responsibility for Norma Jean and her mother's affairs after she was initially like hospitalized after that uh, gotcha. first breakdown. But unfortunately, Grace financially couldn't support taking in Norma Jean. So for a little over a year after her mother's incident, she continued to live with the Atkinsons and was sexually abused. So, when that abuse came to light, Grace took Norma Jean to live with her and her husband, Erwin Doc Goddard, for a few months, until they had placed nine-year-old Norma Jean into Los Angeles Orphan's home, where she would stay for the next two years, until the orphanage, quote-unquote, encouraged the Goddards to take her back in because they thought it would make her happier to live with a family. Me, personally... Probably more likely that they had too many fucking kids in the orphanage yeah, and needed just, to find homes for right, kids. Right, because they probably like, Norma Jean has a place to go. Yeah. Let's like, get her to fuck out. Her, yeah, they don't have to Place find... her there. Plater? <laughs> Plater. <laughs> place her there. But yeah. either way, the Goddards had taken Norma Jean out of the orphanage to live with them. But again, only lasted a few months because you guessed it, Erwin, Doc, fucking Goddard, molested her like a real piece of shit. So... If you didn't already feel abandoned, might as well just abuse it. That's fucking... Shit. Yep. She was nine at this time? Yep. Wow. Yeah, and she had already experienced, uh, like, the sexual abuse in... The with previous the first home. family, yeah. Wow. So yep. it's like, no matter where she goes... Yeah. Just take you down a couple more pegs. So about Clark Gable... Can we, <laughs> can we fast forward to Clark Gable? Um, it's gonna be a long road. We'll oh, get there. Okay. It's coming. I have a lot. I'm sorry. Let's go. After that incident, Norma Jean was bounced from home to home, living with friends, family, until she semi-permanently lived with Grace's aunt, Anna Lower. She lived there for about like two to three years. But then when Aunt Anna got sick, Norma Jean moved back in with the Goddards. In 1942, Doc was being relocated out of state for work. So under the California protection laws, they were unable to take Norma Jean out of the state which would mean that she would have to go back into the orphanage. At this point, Norma Jean is 16 years old, has been abandoned and abused, lived in over 10 different homes, had no stability in her life, and didn't want to go back to the orphanage. What else could she do? Fucking get married at the age of 16. Oh. On June 19th, 1942, Norma Jean married her neighbor, James Daughtry. He was 21 years old, so the age gap wasn't too huge. Well, not as extreme as her mother's first marriage, yeah. if you're looking for a comparison. She dropped out of high school, became a housewife, and in 1943, James enlisted in the Merchant Marines. And she lived with his parents while he was shipped out to the Pacific for two years. While James was deployed, she started her job at Radio Airplane Company. They had produced drone aircraft, primarily used for gunnery targets in World War II efforts. This is where she had met photographer David Conover. He was sent to the factory to shoot morale-boosting pictures of female workers by the U.S. 
Army Air Force's first motion picture unit. After working with Conover, she decided to quit her job, moved out of her husband's parents' house, and started modeling, signed a contract with Blue Book Model Agency, and to get more modeling jobs, she traded in her curly brunette hair for a straight and blonde look, which she would become fucking infamous for. Yeah, rock the rest of her life. Pretty much, yeah. Literally. Probably still would be rocking that shit today. Yeah, if she were not bald. With her body type, it was just made for pinup and advertisements and men's magazines. And she had appeared on 33 different magazine covers as a model. Things like pageant, U.S. camera, laugh, peak, just for some examples. In 1946, she had a screen test with 20th Century Fox. They had given her a six-month contract to avoid her being signed by rival studio RKO Pictures. This was the start of her relationship with Fox. And it was pretty much the same as every other relationship in her life. Unfulfilling, unstable. Once she was signed, Fox executive Ben Lyon selected her stage name Marilyn because she reminded him of Broadway star Marilyn Miller. And Monroe was Norma Jean's mother's maiden name. Thus, the legend Marilyn Monroe was born. In September of 1946, she finally divorced James Daughtry because he was against her having a career in show business at all. I don't think he was too hurt by the Dear John letter that he received because in interviews later on in his life, he recollects his marriage with Marilyn and his only statements were her ability to cook or clean. Because, like, once she got famous and after her passing, like, everyone wanted to interview the first husband of the infamous Marilyn Monroe. Monroe. And that's that's really all he had to say about it was her ability to cook and clean and make him sandwiches. What nice. a fucking dickhole. Yeah. At no surprise, Marilyn Monroe later stated that in her first marriage, she was dying of boredom, and it was only out of convenience. Yeah. Didn't want to go back to the orphanage. Mm-mm. Conveniently mm. marry a dickhole. <laughs> Leave him when you get famous. Amen. Well, she wasn't famous yet. Oh. Close enough. Leave him anyway. Fuck him. Leave all of the dickholes behind. <laughs> During her first contract with Fox, they didn't give her any film roles. Instead, she dedicated her time to acting, singing, and dancing classes, and enrolled in Actors Laboratory Theater, uh, which was an acting school she described as, my first taste of what real acting and drama could be. And I was hooked. I don't know what accent I just said <laughs> <for> there. <laughs> but I'm digging it. <laughs> Can you do all of Marilyn's quotes in that accent? <laughs> I don't even know what that was. I don't know. Oh, sorry, guys. When Fox didn't renew her contract, she returned to modeling and odd jobs at film studios. Marilyn became protege of John Hyde, who just so happened to be vice president of William Morris Agency, a Hollywood talent agency that was around in the time. Nice person to have as a friend. Mm-hmm. Or as a fuck buddy. Oh. <laughs> surprise, surprise. They start banging and he wanted to marry her, but she turned him down. In those days, it was known to have like casting couches. Yeah. So you put out or you get out. Yeah. <laughs> so I think she was blatantly playing the game, sleeping with a VP talent agent to get her name around Hollywood, which it did. Hey. And I think it paid off. Yeah, go girl. Yeah. Gotta do what you gotta do, man. And also, he did pay for her plastic surgery on her jaw and a rhinoplasty, also commonly known as a uh, nose job. Nose job. To make her more employable. In 1949, Marilyn was still a struggling model and actress when she got into a small car accident on Sunset Boulevard. So who finds her but photographer Tom Kelly. He had gave her money to get a cab ride home and he asked her to pose nude for him before uh, <laughs> this accident had occurred. Okay, and I thought she, you were going to say during the accident. During the accident. Hey, can you pose nude for me? <laughs> can you get naked right now on here's your busted some, ass car? <laughs> here's some money. Get your cab. Thanks for posing nude. But uh, his previous request for it, she always declined. Uh, she was worried about the negative impact that it would have on her possible movie career. A few days after this accident happened and he gave her some money, 
It changed her mind. She posed for the nude photos under the name Mona Monroe. This is what came to be the infamous red velvet photos. A couple years after, when she was in the middle of shooting the film Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, the fact that it was Marilyn Monroe nude in the photos Golden Dream calendars, they, they started to circulate. The studio started freaking out that people were going to be outraged and wanted her to deny these claims. Instead, she had an interview with a reporter and straight up admitted to it. Her quote was, and I'm not going to do it weird. <laughs> I don't even know what accent that I was. I'm not sure. But if it comes out, it comes out. What was I supposed to do? I needed the money. I was going to be out on the street and it was tasteful. And the guy's wife was there to make sure that nothing happened. It became a hot topic in the news, which was perfect timing for a Mr. Hugh Hefner. Mm. He was thinking about the launch of Playboy at the time and contacted the printer that was also in the city of Chicago. He paid for the rights to the photos, and that's how Marilyn Monroe was the cover and centerfold of the first Playboy that was released in December of 1953. The very first Playboy. Yep, very first Playboy. That's the uh, cool. first edition didn't even have like a date on it. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yep. Well, you figure because they didn't know if it was, it actually... was going to be a thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fun fact, Hugh Hefner is in the mausoleum in Westwood Cemetery, Los Angeles, right next to Marilyn Monroe, the woman who put him on the map, even though he had never personally met her. I don't really think that Marilyn would be as thrilled as him since she never received a thank you or any money for it besides the original $50 that she got from Tom for the original calendar photo shoot. And she never even received a copy of the magazine. She had to buy it herself. She had to buy the magazine <laughs> that sure she was fucking in. did. Oh my, Lanta. Yeah, so she is probably rolling in that mausoleum. Jesus. So, moving on from the red velvet photo stage of her life, 1953 was a big year for Marilyn. She had leading roles in Niagara, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and How to Marry a Millionaire, basically establishing her as a sex symbol and dumb blonde type roles that she could never seem to escape. When she refused the role in another musical comedy, The Girl in Pink Tights, Fox had suspended Marilyn, and this stirred up some negative publicity. So, how can she win back those hearts of the people? She married baseball star player Joe DiMaggio. Joe DiMaggio. Are you Mario? (laughs) It's me, Joe DiMaggio. (laughs) On January 14th of 1954 at San Francisco City Hall, they were married. While they were on their honeymoon in Japan, she was asked to go to Korea for a USO show to perform songs from her movies. She couldn't deny the troops, leaving Joe less than thrilled alone on their honeymoon while she went to sing for 60,000 U.S. Marines for four days. So it's very safe to say Joe was not a fan of being the husband of a famous sex symbol. When they returned home, Marilyn settled a new contract with Fox, which would include a $100,000 bonus and starring in a film adaptation of The Seven-Year Itch. Leading to the final nail in the coffin of their marriage, the studio had arranged to film the infamous white dress great scene in Manhattan. Just so happened to tell the press and attracted about 2,000 spectators. With each gust of wind tossing up her dress, roaring cheers would follow. Thanks. (laughs) Leaving Joe pretty fucking furious since he was on set the entire time. (laughs) Yeah. So you're just standing there and... every time. Yeah, just... The the crowd would cheer and he'd just get more and more More and more pissed. Especially, like, when they first started filming. This is a fun little fact tidbit. She had, like, one pair of white panties on under this white dress. And, uh, first couple shots completely fucking see-through. Oh, wow. Uh, So she is actually, in all of the photos, she's wearing, uh, like, a second pair of underwear over top of it. Oh. Yeah, so she had not one. Count them two. Two. (laughs) Underrooskies. Pair of underrooskies. But, yeah, he was still not happy, even though there was (laughs) two two pairs of underrooskies. Doesn't uh, wipe that away. Yeah. And not to mention, then was also on front pages internationally. Mm -hmm. So that would also do it. Upon her return to Hollywood in October, she filed for divorce only nine months into their marriage. 
After filming wrapped up for the seven-year itch in November of 1954, she gave Hollywood and Fox the good old fuck you. Marilyn made her way for Manhattan where she and photographer Milton Green founded their own production company, the Marilyn Monroe Productions, also known as MMP, to break free from playing the same old sex role and control to take more serious roles. And then she had also spent a year studying acting again. During this transitional period, she started dating playwright Arthur Miller, but their relationship became more serious once her divorce was finalized from Joe and when Arthur separated from his wife at the time. Her business partner, Milton Green, urged her to end her relationship with Arthur because Arthur was being investigated by the FBI for allegation of communism and was subpoenaed by the House of Un-American Activities Committee. (laughs) Yeah. So this led the FBI to open a file on Marilyn Monroe. Mm. Marilyn had openly talked about being a leftist. So this poses questions for the FBI. Is she a threat? What influence does she have? Who does she know? What does she know? Did the FBI potentially bug her home? Also was speculated that there was money from Marilyn Monroe Productions finding its way to the Communist Party. Side note, you can view these records for yourself online. Uh, They were declassified by the FBI back in 2012. By the end of the year, Marilyn Monroe Productions was unable to finance any films alone. So who do they turn to? They didn't turn to Fox. (laughs) Yes, they did. You fucking know it, girl. (laughs) Fucking Fox. So they cut a new deal with the devil for a seven-year contract. (laughs) 400000 to make four films, one film for Marilyn Monroe Productions for each completed film for Fox. Plus, they granted her the right to choose her own projects, directors, and cinematographers. That's cool. Mm-hmm. At least that's a little... A little bit better? A little bit better. <laughs> yeah. Just wait. It gets, gets better again. <laughs> nice and shitty, like every uh, other time that she worked with Fox. On June 29th of 1956, she married Arthur Miller at Westchester County Court in White Plains, New York. Arthur was an intellectual, being a playwright and all. So in addition to his influence on her left-wing political beliefs, she had also converted to Judaism. I mean, if you ask me, he seemed uh, pretty, like, manipulative because Mm. she took on a lot of his beliefs because... I didn't see anything before their relationship that she had these uh, left-wing Any interest in, interests yeah. or these, like, religious reviews mm. or anything like that. But anyways, I digress. Marilyn's business partnership with Milton Green had also deteriorated to the point where she bought him out. Arthur wanted to be involved in Marilyn Monroe Productions and her work that she was doing. So this is what I mean by I believe he was manipulating. Controlling, mm-hmm. yeah. Every move that she made, all of her big... Puppeteer. Basically, yeah. At this point in her career, she had started to get a reputation to be hard to work with. She was always late, she was a perfectionist, and also pill-dependent. Marilyn Monroe Productions, or MMP... I'm just gonna start saying MMP, guys, because I can't do it every time. Man, I just can't want it. So, (laughs) MMP's first independent production of The Prince and the Showgirl was co-produced and co-starred by Lawrence Oliver. He had angered her with a patronizing statement saying, All you have to do is be sexy. Since that incident, she would purposely be late on Mm. set just to spite him. But I don't think it was really out of character for her because that's not the only instance that she was late to film. Another good example of how she was hard to work with, in Some Like It Hot, she played the role of Sugarcane, which was another dumb blonde. On set, she couldn't remember any of her lines or act as she was being directed. Her co-star, Curtis, famously stated that kissing her was like kissing Hitler. (laughs) Due to the number of retakes that she had insisted or needed for each scene. She had an increasing dependency on pills to go to sleep, also known as, like, barbiturates. Barbiturates. And this was prescribed for her insomnia, and she also would take pills to wake up. So this is your amphetamines to keep her going throughout the day on set. And what do you do? You wash it all down with alcohol. Mm -hmm. A little bit of alcoholism. Perfect. (laughs) During her marriage to Arthur, she had suffered two miscarriages and was briefly hospitalized due to a barbiturate Mm -hmm. overdose. 
So that's just giving you a little bit into our psyche at the time. The last film that Marilyn had completed was The Misfits, written by none other than her playwright husband, Arthur Miller. She had played a dramatic role as recently divorced woman who becomes friends with three aging cowboys, played by Clark Gable, Elay Wallach, oh. and Montgomery Cliff. We fast forwarded. And fast forwarded. We're finally here. <laughs> We're this finally is the here. moment. And it gets sad, oh, but I'm sorry. Just oh. a little bit of foreshadowing. Oh. The fucked up part about this was it was partially influenced by their relationship, uh, her relationship with Arthur Miller, because their marriage was effectively over by this time. So she's playing the role of a divorced woman. And she's about to be a divorced mm-hmm. woman. Exactly. Uh-huh. And he was also already in a new relationship. Oh. Mm-hmm. And not to mention, yet again, playing a role inferior to men. Adding into that. I yeah. mean, it is what she had asked for, but kind of in the worst sort of way. Right. Her health started to cause delays in the filming. She had pains from gallstones and also her increased drug addiction. In August, they actually had to halt filming because she was in the hospital to detox. And on the last day of filming, Clark Gable actually said, quotes, Christ, I'm glad this picture is finished. She damn near gave me a heart attack. He was probably referring to her unexpectedly going nude during a bedroom scene. Some people speculated it was referencing to the up and downs of everyday life working with Marilyn. But nonetheless, Clark Gable died 12 days after filming was completed of a heart attack. Oh my god. Yeah, sad. But also, side note, mini Clark Gable fact. In case you didn't know, he was in the Air Force in his younger years. Adolf Hitler actually favored Clark Gable above all other actors, and during World War II, Hitler offered a sizable reward to anyone that would capture and bring Gable to him unscathed. To be clear, I'm not a fan of Hitler, I'm just a Clark Gable fan, and we had mentioned Hitler earlier, so I was like, oh, small world, six degrees of Marilyn Monroe. So he literally was like, yo, go get a... Yeah, like, he wanted to meet him. He was like, bro, find him. But, like, instead of meet him, like, kidnap him. Yeah. (laughs) Meet him. (laughs) Steal him. Nice. All right. Back to the lady of the hour, or more than an hour, depending on how long I go on. But uh, following the completion of The Misfits in 1961, Marilyn was officially divorced from Arthur Miller. She became preoccupied with health problems and had to have her gallbladder removed, also a surgery for her endometriosis, and hospitalized for four weeks for depression. Even though they were divorced, Joe DiMaggio is the one who actually picked her up from the hospital and tried to help her get back on her feet during this hard time in her life, since she was facing divorce and feelings of abandonment yet again in her life. During her rekindled friendship with DiMaggio, she permanently moved back to California and dated his friend Frank Sinatra. During their relationship, Sinatra gave Marilyn a small white poodle to replace the dog she lost in the divorce with Miller. Marilyn would go on to name the dog Moth, which was short for Mafia. Oh. Cute little fun fact there. Okay. Because, you know, I love the doggos. Yeah. It was around this time was the start of Marilyn's relationship with JFK. Just to give a quick explanation of the inner circles that were colliding. This might get a little bit wordy. Mm -hmm. So Sinatra was in the Rat Pack with Peter Lawford. Peter Lawford was an actor at the time. Peter Lawford was married to JFK's sister, Patricia. Patricia was friends with Marilyn from filming Let's Make Love in her early career. Sinatra was also friends with JFK, and they would party together in Hollywood. Not to mention that Sinatra used his star power to help JFK win votes to become president. Mm -hmm. And then later, there was also wiretaps that revealed Sinatra discussing with Sam Giacana that he was fucking uh, JFK's sister, Patricia, to influence her brothers to ease off the mob. So there's endless possibilities of who introduced them, where, when. So you can speculate how far their relationship had went, but Mm -hmm. my personal opinion, it wasn't the first time that JFK had dipped into dangerous waters with women and also didn't have a record of having long-lasting affairs. So if they did have a relationship, I feel like it was only like one night stands or like a few times happenstance. And it was common for aristocrats at the time to have many affairs with a variety of women. There were also previous reported rumors that after JFK was done, would basically give his leftovers to his brother, Robert. 
I think it's pretty fitting, especially in the case of Marilyn Monroe. Makes sense. Yeah. If they did that before in the past, why would this be any different? Yeah. In spring of 1962, Marilyn began filming Something's Got to Give with co-star Dean Martin. Days before filming was supposed to start, she had caught scientitis. Despite medical advice to postpone, Fox began filming as planned in late April. She was too sick to work for the majority of the first six weeks of filming. Despite confirmations from multiple doctors, Fox went public stating that she was faking it so that it would pressure her to show up to fucking work. The real icing on the cake was on May 19th when Marilyn didn't go to film, but instead took a break to attend President JFK's early birthday celebration at Madison Square Garden in New York, wearing a jaw-dropping beige skin-tight dress covered in rhinestones, which made her appear nude to sing happy birthday, Mm -hmm. Mr. President, all against Fox wishes. Mm -hmm. After Monroe returned to L.A. from New York City, she resumed filming and celebrated her 36th birthday on set on June 1st. Then was again absent from set for several days, pushing 20th Century Fox to the breaking point. On June 7th, Marilyn was fired, and they were suing her for breach of contract, demanding 750000 whopping dollars in damages. Wow. <laughs> Yikes. Fox wanted to replace her, but after co-star Dean Martin refused to make the film with anyone other than Marilyn Monroe, Fox sued him as well. Oh my god. And shut down the production. Holy shit. Because it was in his, like, original contract that he would only act with Marilyn Monroe. Plus, Dean was good friends with Frank, so. Mm Mm-hmm. The studio publicly blamed Marilyn's drug addiction and lack of professionalism for the demise of the film, even claiming that she was mentally disturbed. To counter the negative publicity, Marilyn gave interviews with several high-profile publications like Life and Vogue in her last weeks. After successfully renegotiating her contract with Fox, filming with Marilyn was scheduled to resume in September on Something's Gotta Give. Which brings us to the last day of Marilyn Monroe's life, Saturday, August 4th of 1962. She had woke up in her Brentwood home, Los Angeles, California. At the house was housekeeper Eunice Murray and publicist Patricia Newcomb, who had stayed overnight. Patricia and Marilyn had an argument because Marilyn didn't sleep well the night before, but that was common. I get bitchy when I don't fucking sleep either, especially if you have insomnia, I would be Mm -hmm. pretty fucking pissy. At 4.30 p.m., psychiatrist Ralph Greenson arrived at the house to conduct a therapy session, and he had asked Patricia Newcomb to leave. Approximately 7 p.m., before Greenson left, he had asked Eunice Murray, her housekeeper, to stay overnight and keep Marilyn Monroe company, which is something that is not typically common. He's never had to ask anyone to do that before. Mm. Eunice Murray, she also had, like, a medical background. Mm. So he asked her to stay overnight because he was worried for Marilyn Monroe's state of mind and health. From 7 to 7.15 p.m. approximately, Marilyn had received a call from Joe DiMaggio Jr., with whom she stayed close with since the divorce with his father. He had told her that he had broken up with a girlfriend that she didn't like. He didn't sense anything alarming in how she was talking to him or her behavior on the phone. She seemed happy, chipper. Around 7.45, she had called Ralph Greenson, her psychiatrist that she talked to earlier that day, to tell him the news about the breakup of DiMaggio and his girlfriend. Okay. I, I don't know. To give an update on her state of mind or how she was feeling, that she was in a better mood, hmm. why you would call your psychiatrist. Yeah. I don't know. No, whatever, okay. But uh, there's more speculations later okay. into uh, her relationship uh, with uh, Greenson. So. Okay. Around 8 p.m., Marilyn had gone to her bedroom to go to bed. She had received a call from actor Peter Lawford, the president's brother-in-law. He was trying to persuade her to come to a dinner party that night. He said that she sounded weird, fuzzy, sleepy, but that wasn't unusual for her Mm -hmm. he just assumed that she's either drinking or took some sleeping pills already Mm -hmm. one funny thing that she said she told him say goodbye to pat referencing his wife pat lawford say goodbye to the president and say goodbye to yourself because you're a nice guy before drifting off Hmm. and didn't say anything else oh interesting Mm -hmm. So. so just normal conversation would be uh peculiar to say that right 
Why would you say that? In like a that? casual conversation, phone call, just because you're not going out to their house for dinner. Also, you would be like, well, say hi to Pat for me. Say mm. hi. Not goodbye. Yeah. Why would yeah. you? Yeah. So that was alarming. Uh, he did try to call back Marilyn, but he was unable to reach her. So don't know how he came to this conclusion, but Peter Lawford called his agent Milton Evans, who unsuccessfully tried to reach Ralph Greenson, her psychiatrist, and later called... Marilyn Monroe's lawyer, Milton A. Mickey Rudin. Rudin then called Marilyn's house and was assured by her housekeeper that she was fine, that she had just went to her bedroom and was on the phone earlier. When 3 a.m. rolls around, Eunice Murray, the housekeeper, had woke up, stating she was sensing something was wrong. She saw the light from under Marilyn's bedroom door uh, and started to knock on it, see if she would answer, see if she was still up but was unable to get a response from Marilyn. She had tried to open the door, but the door was locked from the inside. This is when housekeeper Eunice had called Marilyn's psychiatrist, Dr. Greenson. He had advised to look through the window, and that is when she had saw Marilyn lying face down on her bed, covered by a sheet, and clutching a telephone receiver. Shortly after, Dr. Greenson had entered the room by breaking in the window and found Marilyn Monroe lying there dead. Then her psychiatrist, Greenson, called her physician, Dr. Hyman Engelberg, who arrived at the house around 3.50 a.m. and officially confirmed her death. Around 3.25 a.m., they notified the Los Angeles Police Department. On Sunday, August 5th, Deputy Coroner Thomas Noguchi conducted Monroe's autopsy the same day that she was found dead. They also brought in psychiatrists from the Los Angeles Suicide Prevention Center that had interviewed Marilyn's doctors and psychiatrists on her mental state at the time. Due to the advanced state of rigor mortis at the time her body was discovered, her estimated time of death was between 8.30 p.m. and 10.30 p.m. on August 4th. The toxology report was only taken on the blood and liver, showed that the cause of death was due to acute barbiturate poisoning. There was 8 milligrams of chloral hydrate, which was another drug used to help her go to sleep, 4.5 milligrams of pentobarbital, uh, also known as nebutal, in her blood, as well as 13 milligrams of pentobarbital in her liver. The police found empty bottles of these medicines right next to her bed. The dosages were several times over the lethal limit and rules out an accidental overdose from their perspective at the time of the investigation. They speculated that it had to have been taken in one gulp or within a few gulps over a minute or so. The funny thing about that is there was no evidence of pills in her stomach. And it's a little known fact that Nembutal would leave a yellow film because it's one of those uh, pill capsules that has like that casing, that like jelly casing. So when people typically, if you take the whole pill of like Nebutal, you would end up with like a dye residue in your throat or in your mouth, uh, or you would at least have it in your stomach. But I mean, my thoughts on it. So what if she broke it out of the capsule? There would be no yellow film. It would be more dangerous because it all would hit your system at the same time and you wouldn't have the pill in your stomach. If she was truly trying to kill herself, then why take a handful and handfuls of pills back to back? Or even people that speculate that it was an accidental suicide, that she had forgotten that she took pills and then just proceeded to take 40 (laughs) pills by hand, which I find is Mm -hmm. just... Not a a fucking option, um, if you ask me. But if you are truly trying to kill yourself, like, you would want to make it as quick and easy as possible. So just break it out of the capsules. It would all hit your system at the same time. Or could someone mix it for you in a drink and it would be a toxic cocktail? Mm -hmm. Question mark. Um, They had also reported that there was no signs of external wounds or bruises on the body. There was no needle marks. No suicide note was found, but that's not unusual because about 40% of suicide victims don't leave notes, especially in her case. If you're committing suicide, you probably don't feel particularly close to anybody. She felt abandoned her whole entire life and felt alone. So did she have a reason to leave a note? That's up to your own speculation there. On August 17th, the chief coroner had published their final report statement that classified Monroe's death as a probable suicide. Stating, 
Miss Monroe had suffered from psychiatric disturbance for a long time. She had experienced severe fears and frequent depressions. Mood changes were abrupt and unpredictable. Among symptoms of disorganization, sleep disturbance was prominent and for which she had been taking sedative drugs for many years. She was thus familiar with and experienced the use of sedative drugs and was well aware of their dangers. In our investigation, we have learned that Miss Monroe had often expressed wishes to give up, to withdraw, and even die. On more than one occasion in the past, she had made a suicide attempt using sedative drugs. On these occasions, she had called for help and been rescued. It is in our opinion that the same pattern was repeated on the evening of August 4th, except for the rescue. It has been our practice with similar information collected from other cases in the past to recommend a certification for such deaths as probable suicide. Additional clues for suicide provided by the physical evidence are the high level of barbiturates and chloral hydrate in the blood, which with other evidence from the autopsy indicates the probable ingestion of a large amount of drugs within a short period of time. The completely empty bottle of Nebutal, the prescription of which 25 capsules was filled the day before ingestion, and the locked door to the bedroom, which was unusual. So she, the bottle of Nebutal was empty. Mm Mm-hmm. And she just the day before got 25 of them. Mm Mm-hmm. Holy shit. Yeah. Like, they think that she had taken uh, 40 pills. In total. In total. Wow. So if she was taking 40 pills total... It doesn't make sense that she would accidentally just take 40 fucking pills. No, you're not going to accidentally take 40 pills. Yeah. And there's a shit ton of ways to take pills. Like, so people that believe it couldn't be done because there was no yellow dye in her throat or like like a yellow film, that's bullshit. There's a million different ways to take pills. But one fact that we do know is that it was definitely due to barbiturate overdose that she had died. In the 1970s, claims surfaced that Marilyn's death was a murder, not a suicide. Due to these claims, Los Angeles County District Attorney John Vandekamp assigned his colleague Mike Carroll to conduct a 1982 threshold investigation to see whether a criminal investigation should be opened. Mike Carroll worked with Alan Tomich, an investigator for the district attorney office, for over three months on an inquiry that resulted in a 30-page report. They didn't find any credible evidence to support the theory that Marilyn was murdered. In 1983, Thomas Noguchi, that had completed the original autopsy report, published his memoirs, in which he had discussed Monroe's case and the allegations of discrepancies on the autopsy and the coroner's ruling of probable suicide. These included the claims that Marilyn could not have ingested the pills because her stomach was empty, that Nebutal capsules should have left a yellow residue, and that she may have been administered an enema. And the autopsy notated no needle marks despite the fact that she routinely received injections from her doctors. Thomas Noguchi had explained that hemorrhaging of his stomach lining indicated that the medication had been administered orally, and that because Marilyn had been an addict for several years, the pills would have been absorbed more rapidly than the case of non-addicts. He also denied that Nebutal leaves a dye residue. He noted that only very recent needle marks were visible on her body and that the only bruise notated on Marilyn's body at the time of her death was on her lower back. It was superficial and its placement indicated that it was accidental and not linked to foul play. Nagachi finally concluded that, based on his observations, the most probable conclusion is that Marilyn had committed suicide. So we're going to start deep diving into the different conspiracy theories. The way that I'm going to break it up is who had done it? Who dunt it? Who dunt it? So the first and probably the most famous conspiracy theory is involving the Kennedys. So into the reasonings. Number one, it was political suicide. Marilyn had plans to expose their rumored affair with either JFK or Robert Kennedy or the both of them that would damage both of their political careers. Uh, Whenever Robert Kennedy wanted to break off the affair or when JFK wanted to break off the affair, it goes both ways. Either way, bringing to light that they had an affair with Marilyn Monroe. 
Also, overall, she just knew too much political information and had kept very detailed records of her personal relationships with everyone that she had been with in this inner circle. She had kept a record of it in what was called her Little Red Book. It was a secret diary full of tasty details. Another conspiracy theory that is linked to the Kennedys was her communist relations. In 1962, The Strange Death of Marilyn Monroe came out. It was a book by Frank A. Capel. Capel was an anti-communist activist, and he went on to accuse everyone connected to Marilyn as a communist, including the psychiatrist Ralph Greenson, doctor and physician Hyman Engelberg, her publicist Pat Newcombs, housekeeper Eunice Murray, JFK, Pat Kennedy, they were all just fucking communists in this, guy, in this guy's eyes. Uh, the primary focus is that Robert F. Kennedy was a communist leader hell-bent on overthrowing the United States government and liquidating anyone who got into his way. So if you're looking for any legitimate new information on the case, this isn't the theory or the book to prove it. Do not waste your time. <laughs> I did it. It's only about like 80 pages um, and you can get it for free on the internet if you just Google it. It's a PDF. Download it, read it, waste your time, have fun. But he basically just twisted the events to fit his theory and political ideals um, on communists that they were the threat to the survival of the American way of life. Now, in my personal opinion, this next theory is the most probable, makes the most sense to me. It's involving Robert F. Kennedy. Uh, as an accidental death. In 1985, there was a book that came out uh, called Goddess, The Secret Lives of Marilyn Monroe, written by Anthony Summers. He was a tabloid journalist, mm -hmm. so don't know how reliable and credible that is. Yeah. He had stated that Marilyn was psychotic and severely addicted to drugs and alcohol in the last months of her life, which is true. Not wrong. Yeah, not wrong there. One for truth. one. One for one. <laughs> um, and had affairs with John F. Kennedy and Robert F. Kennedy. Three for three. <laughs> but the last two are two for one. Yeah. <laughs> Math. But anyway, so when Robert F. Kennedy ended their affair, she threatened to reveal their association and relationship, which Kennedy and Peter Lawford had attempted to prevent by enabling her addiction. So, like, just let her drink it out, take her pills put her on her merry way. Marilyn was hysterical and when she accidentally overdosed and died in an ambulance on the way to the hospital, Robert Kennedy wanted to leave Los Angeles before Marilyn's death had become public and her body was returned to her house and the overdose was staged as a suicide by Peter Lawford, who Marilyn had spoken with earlier that night, the Kennedys, and then FBI director J. Edgar Hoover. Now, uh, the author Anthony Summers... His theory, while not the strongest of the bunch, is supported by an interview he conducted in 1983 with housekeeper Eunice Murray. According to Summers, there was a moment where Eunice Murray had said the words to the effect of, oh, why do I have to keep covering this up? When probed further, Eunice Murray allegedly said, well, of course Bobby Kennedy was there, and of course there was an affair with Bobby Kennedy. So that's implicating that he was there that night, she knew that they had an ongoing relationship, leading that it's very probable that he had known that she had died that night and possibly had influenced her over the edge. So that wraps up the Kennedys, sort of, kind of, still <laughs> kind of involved throughout the rest of the conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. it, the only factors that really change are who actually put the, yeah, the action in motion. So, next conspiracy theory. In the 1960s, it was a popular conspiracy theory that the CIA wanted to take revenge on the Kennedys for the failed Bay of Pigs invasion on Cuba. The Bay of Pigs invasion, it was a plan to push Cuban leader Fidel Castro from power. On January 1st of 1959, Fidel Castro, he was a young Cuban nationalist, and he drove his guerrilla army into the Havana to overthrow General Batista. General Batista, it was the nation's American-backed president at the time. After less than a day of fighting in the Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba, there was 114 people killed and over 
1,100 people that were taken prisoner. The CIA blamed the failed mission on excessive pressure that was put on them from the Kennedy administration. The Kennedys thought that disposing Castro was top priority. Allegedly, Joe DiMaggio had read Marilyn's diaries after her death. The diaries that have since mysteriously disappeared, they had disclosed that she had detailed conversations with Robert Kennedy about the CIA's plans to poison Fidel Castro with the aid of Chicago gangster Sam Giacana. So you have to ask yourself, would the CIA kill Marilyn for revenge? Did she know too much? What would happen if these secret missions, planned assassinations, and ties with the mafia had leaked to the public? I feel like also, if that is the case, the CIA would more or less be killing her to prove a point to mm-hmm. the Kennedys. Yeah. Not, like, necessarily killing one of them, because that's high profile. Not saying Marilyn isn't, but killing a president comes a little later. Yeah, yeah, you gotta do a warning shot. Yeah. And by a warning shot, you mean just overdose. Yeah. <laughs> Recently, in 2017, there was a documentary release that is also available on Netflix if you want to watch it. Not that great, but if you want to spend your time on it, do it. It's called Acknowledged. It was by extraterrestrial conspiracy theorist Dr. Stephen Greer. This documentary poses the question, did she know too much about aliens? Aliens? (laughs) Are you serious? Yeah, I'm being fucking serious. Oh. So... Marilyn had access to information about aliens when she was having the rumored affair with President John F. Kennedy around the time of her death. Marilyn had plans to leak top secret details about the Roswell crash of 1947, among other things. In effort to stop the leak and her rumored affairs with both Kennedy brothers, the CIA offered to have her killed, according to this documentary. Hmm. Now, moving on to the Mafia. In 1982, Marilyn Monroe, Murder Cover-Up, was released, written by private detective Milo Spiriglio. (laughs) I want to leave that one. (laughs) I like it that way. So in this book, allegedly, Marilyn had been murdered by labor union leader Jimmy Hoffa and Chicago mob boss Sam Giacana. So the Kennedy family would leave the mafia alone. It included statements made by Lionel Grandison, who worked at the Los Angeles County Coroner's Office at the time of Marilyn Monroe's death. Grandison claimed that Marilyn's body had been extensively bruised and had been omitted from the original autopsy report, and that he had personally seen her secret red diary, but it had mysteriously disappeared. He stated that he was later forced to sign her death certificate. Milo demanded that the investigation in Marilyn's death be reopened by the authorities, and the Los Angeles District Attorney agreed to review the case. The new investigation could not find any evidence to support the murder claims. Also, Grandison was found not to be a reliable witness, since he had been fired from the coroner's office for stealing from the corpses that were being brought in. Oh, nice. Fun fact. So I don't think he was very reliable. that guy. There were also allegations that Marilyn's home was wiretapped by Bernard Spindel were also found to be false. Spindel's apartment had been raided by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office in 1966, during which the tapes were seized. He later made the claim that he had wiretapped Marilyn's house, but it was not supported by the contents of the tapes, which the investigators had listened to. In the 2012... Marilyn at Rainbow's End, biographer Darwin Porter suggested that Marilyn was murdered by mob boss Sam Giacana, that he had received orders from one of the Kennedy brothers to silence the actress and anything she was going to say about their affair. Porter claims that five mafia hitmen entered Marilyn's home and administered a chloroform-soaked washcloth to her face, injected her with barbiturates, and moved her to her bedroom to make the scene look like a suicide. And in this book, they also bring up, like, some little facts, like, all the caps were on the tops of her, um, like, the pill bottles. There wasn't, like, a glass of water next to her bed, so if she did orally take them... Dry swallow is hard. Especially especially 40 40 fucking pill capsules. Yeah. Yeah, not real. In the 2000s, new information as secret tapes had come to light. They were allegedly recorded by Marilyn shortly before her death, explaining her 
everyday thoughts about her life and plans for the future. And these recordings, it was like an exercise for her psychiatrist, Dr. Greenson. John Minor published transcripts that he claimed to be made from these audio tapes. Since Marilyn talked about plans for her future, Minor argues that this is proof that she could have not killed herself or that she didn't have plans to kill herself. In these tapes, she also discussed her sex life, use of enemas, which led Minor to allege that Marilyn was killed by an enema that was administered by her housekeeper. Now, Minor's allegations have received a decent amount of criticism. During the official review of the case by the district attorney in 1982, he told the investigators about the tapes but did not mention that he had transcripts for them. But then... In the 2000s, magically has transcripts. Oh, look at these transcripts now. Yeah. Minor stated that he had never mentioned that he had these transcripts before because Dr. Greenson had sworn him to silence. These tapes have never been found, and Minor remains to be the only person to claim that they had ever existed. Mm -hmm. Dr. Greenson was already dead before Minor went public with this. Of course. So, if you're thinking that these tapes were not fucking real, you're not the only one. There was a colleague that worked with John Minor um, at the University of Southern California that challenged the authenticity of these transcripts. One of the main reasons that his colleague had questioned that these tapes were ever even real, or the transcripts were even real, is because Minor had gone bankrupt shortly before selling these alleged transcripts. He had first attempted to sell the transcripts to Vanity Fair, but when the magazine had asked him to show the transcripts to Anthony Summers in order to validate them, it had become apparent that he did not have them. Minor finally sold the transcripts to British author Matthew Smith, but the transcripts were written several decades after he had supposedly listened to the tapes. So he just transcribed it from memory? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right, douchebag. Miners claim that Monroe's housekeeper was in fact her nurse and administered enemas on a regular basis. But his colleague had also mentioned that Miner had a personal obsession about enemas. And his colleague also concluded that his theory about Marilyn's death represented his sexual interest and wasn't based on any evidence. Hmm. In 1993, there was another book that was released that also blamed the doctors, but seemed a little bit more credible than Miner's theory of it. There was a biography of Monroe written by Donald Spoto. It disputed the previous conspiracy theories, but alleged that Marilyn's death was an accidental overdose staged as a suicide. According to him, her doctors, Greenson, the psychiatrist, and Engelberg, her physician, had been trying to stop her abuse of Nebutal. In order to monitor her drug use, they agreed to never prescribe her anything without first consulting with each other. Marilyn was able to persuade her physician, Engelberg, to break his promise by lying to him, stating that Greenson had agreed to it. She took several Nebutals on August 4th, but did not tell this to her psychiatrist, Dr. Greenson who prescribed her for a chloral hydrate enema, the combination of these two drugs is what had killed her. Afraid of the consequences, the doctors and Marilyn's housekeeper then staged the death as a suicide. Spoto argued that Marilyn could have not been suicidal because she had reached a new agreement with 20th Century Fox and because she was allegedly going to remarry Joe DiMaggio and mm-hmm. her life was looking more on the up and up. He based his theory of her death on alleged discrepancies in the police statements given by Marilyn's housekeeper and the doctors. There was a claim made by Marilyn's publicist that they had been alerted of the death already at 10.30 p.m., as well as claims made by prosecutor John Minor, who was involved in the official investigation. Minor had alleged that her autopsy revealed signs more consistent with an enema than an oral ingestion. So, that wraps up the fucking death of Marilyn Monroe and all the conspiracy theories that uh, surrounds it. So, what are your thoughts? What do you believe? What do you feel? I feel like it's uh, very plausible. Um, I feel like the CIA or the mafia story is very plausible. But then I also liked that last conspiracy theory, too, about... It was just an accident by two doctors not knowing what to do and not wanting to be to blame. Yeah. 
because that could prove negligence on their end. And then they'd never be able to practice ever again. Mm -hmm. Their careers would be ruined. Yep. And also, Fox would be coming at them. Everybody would be coming at them. Yeah, Fox would be fucking pissed because they just signed a contract. Even though Fox didn't necessarily (laughs) have a stable relationship with them. Even though Fox didn't care about Maryland, they cared more about their money and their contract Mm -hmm. and the future monies that they would have. The future monies. On a more serious note, no matter what you believe had happened, Marilyn Monroe was one of the most famous women of pop culture, loved by everyone, and was one of the most beautiful women in the world. But she still struggled with depression and previous suicide attempts. So I wanted to take a moment for anyone that may need to hear it. You're not alone, and there are people that can help. If you, yourself, or someone you know is in need, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is there. They provide free and confidential support 24-7 and can be reached at 1-800-273-8255 or at suicidepreventionlifeline.org where you can also chat online. So, if you want to tell us what your beliefs are, your theories, or if I miss stuff, and also, there are more conspiracy theories, I just don't have the fucking time for it today, guys. <laughs> or I don't feel like there's enough evidence to even put it in honorable mentions. Uh, but if you have any of those, or you want to share your thoughts, hit us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at the Creepy Burrito, Or you can fucking email us at thecreepyburrito at gmail.com. Hell yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Write us an email. Let us know if you have any suggestions, if uh, there's anything you guys want us to cover. And also, if you write us a sweet-ass review, we might shout you out. Hell yeah. Live on the air. Foreshadowing. Not doing it on this episode because it's way too damn long. This episode's long as fuck. Long as fuck. So check out the next episode if you wrote us a review because we'll probably read it. On that note, uh, bye-bye. here i had a hot pocket (laughs) and now i'm a whole new woman i'm shelby and i eat hot pockets (laughs) why don't you (laughs) i like that one okay i should do ads for hot pockets